0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Two years into the pandemic, some commiseration on this President's Day that the founding fathers lived in a sickly time as well.
1: It's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years.
0: Also inside the White House kitchen, through the eyes of black chefs who became trusted advisors as
2: Zephyr Wright did for Lyndon Johnson. She was a family confidant. Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act.
0: Plus, a view from abroad is the story of John Adams and his wife, Abigail, how their decade overseas shaped their vision for the U.S.
1: They felt that America had more opportunity, more liberty.
0: And the evolving role of first ladies.
1: During the recent membership drive, you made it clear that you understand your essential role in keeping CPR well-funded.
0: I've been listening to CPR for a number of years and it was finally time to step up and financially support CPR.
2: I think it's very important that we support this wonderful service that we have available in our community.
1: I appreciate you guys and as a new listener, I know it's my responsibility to support you. Thank you for your support. You make it all possible.
0: On President's Day, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams all care deeply about health and medicine. Perhaps it's because, like us, they lived at a rather sickly time. Today it's COVID-19. Back then it was malaria, yellow fever, and smallpox. DU historian Jeannie Abrams wrote Revolutionary Medicine The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. The founding fathers and their families dealt with a lot of sickness, didn't they?
1: Oh, it was extraordinary. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was predeceased by his young wife in her 20s and five of his six children, hmm. and even several grandchildren. He, he once wrote um, a friend in Europe that I was born to lose everything that I love, and it was all to disease, which was common. The mortality rate was very, very high at the time, and Jefferson was kind of an extreme example.
0: An extreme example. The, the infant mortality rate in particular was very high in, in the fledgling America.
1: For children under two, as high as 40% in the early years. Um, as one historian later noted, maybe about a half century ago, um, it's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years.
0: You say medical care around this time was largely done at home and it was often self administered. What are some examples?
1: Well, all of the founding mothers were quite knowledgeable about using herbs and common uh, medicines at the time to treat family members. Diseases that we would certainly go um for our first step would be to a physician were first thought about informally, so even cancer Benjamin Franklin advised his sister who had breast cancer about certain folk treatments that he had heard locally, including putting a wooden cone on the breast to cure the breast cancer. It obviously did nothing, but he said that he had heard um, cases where the people had been cured, but they were struggling. It was really an area of darkness in many ways in terms of medicine, and scientific medicine was really just coming into its own.
0: Abigail Adams, Martha Washington, Dolly Madison all grew medicinal herbs in their gardens.
1: So indeed did Thomas Jefferson. Probably um, one of his major hobbies was growing flowers and plants at Monticello. He probably grew as many as 50 different medicinal plants, used certain plants to treat stomach ailments, and some of them we use to this day. Like what? Well, aspirin um, that we use, the ubiquitous and very successful medication aspirin, um, is derived from the willow tree. Jefferson, for example, grew lavender in his garden, which was used to treat headaches.
0: There were doctors in this era, but you write that only about 10% held medical degrees.
1: Correct. There were no particular rules for becoming a doctor. Most and there was no licensing at the time. Um most physicians really got their training on the job so to speak as an apprentice, but only 10% actually went through formal university training, and that wasn't necessarily all bad. Many of those who had gone through formal university training had only really studied theoretical medicine and did not have much hands-on experience.
0: So, what did it mean to be a doctor?
1: Well, some of it was experimental, but really, the foundation for medical treatment um, in early America was almost universally bleeding. That was taking some blood bloodletting, blood as we would know it today, taking some blood from the patient um, in an effort to adjust the body's humors
0: humors what are what are humors?
1: So those were considered the four main aspects of the human body, black and yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And that was what controlled the stability of the body. That there needed
0: to be some balance between all of those uh, energies. And
1: and disease was the result of an imbalance between those four humors. So bloodletting, for example, would be used to remove an excess of one of those humors.
0: Huh. Even though you'd think that uh, bloodletting might release all four of them. But I guess the idea is that magically the bad one comes out.
1: Yes, really, um, a lot of those ideas seem counterintuitive to us today, but they were followed from the fourth century um, and the Greek um, physician Galen, ultimately George Washington, for example died of what we would consider today quite a treatable disease, some type of strep throat. His epiglottis was swollen. He basically suffocated. But his death was really hurried on by the fact that he was bled three or four times that last day by his physicians. And his body probably also went into shock, which hastened his death.
0: You describe this as taking out over half of Washington's circulating mm-hmm, blood, mm-hmm. over half his blood.
1: Physicians really had just kind of a guesstimate about how much blood a person held in their body and what was safe. And it, it seems counterintuitive to us Um But they felt that they could regulate um, all diseases. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was probably the leading American physician in the United States at that time.
0: And who signed the Declaration of Independence. Yes, he
1: was revolutionary um, in his uh, medical practice, I would say, in many areas and certainly in his politics. He felt that all diseases could be cured by bloodletting.
0: Thomas Jefferson didn't buy into bloodletting, though, did he? He was circumspect.
1: No. Thomas Jefferson was a very fervent believer in natural medicine. He really felt that the body had the capability to heal itself if only physicians would leave the people alone. Um, This may be apocryphal, but one of the stories circulating about him was that he used to say if he saw two or three doctors in conversation, he'd look up in the sky to see if there were any vultures circling. Benjamin
0: Franklin, whom you call the founding father of American medicine, helped start America's first medical school in Philadelphia, which was the capital of the country at the time. And Jeannie, I didn't know this, he also invented several medical devices, the Flexible Urinary Catheter. And bifocals. Mm -hmm. Um, Why was Benjamin Franklin so interested in health? I suppose there probably wasn't anything he wasn't interested in. That's that's
1: correct. And, you know, this whole group of founders were just extraordinarily brilliant people. They were so curious, and they were all very much influenced by enlightenment thought. And um, health and happiness and progress were very much interconnected in their minds. So that is one of the reasons I think that Franklin in particular was so interested in medicine. Medicine was one way that they felt they could really calculate the index of human progress.
0: And of course, these are people very interested in human potential, in the potential of a new nation. And and that would be linked to the health of the populace. Correct. Little is known at this period about microbes. and there's this general sense that bad air can cause illness. When Benjamin Franklin dies in 1790, it's thought that he fell ill after sleeping with his windows open.
1: Correct. One of the other general theories along with the bloodletting was that miasmas, bad air, caused many, many illnesses. Um, for instance, I learned this while I was doing the research. Malaria comes from the ma- the Latin mal- area, bad Oh, air. bad air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which um, was very interesting to me. So that led to some very ludicrous ideas. Um, for example, during the terrible, notorious 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, doctors were very divided on what they thought the causes um, of that outbreak were. Even Dr. Benjamin Rush, the leading physician, as I mentioned, felt that... Spoiled coffee on the wharves was probably the reason for the outbreak of the yellow fever.
0: And what, that there was something emanating from Mm -hmm, the spoiled? Something
1: emanating from the spoiled coffee.
0: You know, I I think it's also um, really easy to read this book, Revolutionary Medicine, and go, oh, weren't they naive? But if someone writes a book about our medical care today, 50 years from now, they're likely to find some, you know— crazy notions that we hold.
1: Yes, and I I think um, we very frequently read stories about medications or treatments today that were considered very successful, only to find out that they were indeed unhelpful. We know how many drugs have caused um, very serious side effects. Right, you think Um, about thalidomide
0: or, Mm -hmm. I suppose, DDT, not necessarily a medicine, but...
1: Unintended consequences. And It's interesting to me that some of those treatments that we consider especially ludicrous, like bloodletting and leeches, um, actually have come back into their own in a certain way. Um, Leeches have been approved by the FDA over the last couple of years as a medical device. Um, They're actually helpful in regenerating blood vessels. And um, bloodletting on a limited basis has also um, helped people with high blood pressure.
0: This book winds up being a, a rather intimate portrait of the founding fathers and mothers. You know, it's their it's their medical histories. Where do you turn to get stuff like this?
1: Well, first of all, they were all such prolific, articulate writers. Um, most of that information is garnered from their letters. Thomas Jefferson alone wrote over eighteen thousand letters. And they were very detailed, informative letters. And some of the things that we would consider very private, they exchanged um, with one another very regularly. Thank
0: you for being with us.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me.
0: University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams is the author of Revolutionary Medicine, The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. We spoke in 2014. On this President's Day, we get new insight into one of the founding fathers, John Adams, and his wife Abigail. The couple spent a decade overseas, and that experience shaped their vision for America. Let's hear again from historian Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver. She's also the author of A View from Abroad, the story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe. She spoke with my colleague Carla Jimenez last July.
3: Why did you want to write about this particular time in John and Abigail Adams' lives?
1: I think most people, of course, know that John and Abigail Adams played a pivotal role in the American Revolution. But I think for most people, the American Revolution stops in America, and um, they know there's fighting going on and there are still wars. But I don't think they realize how pivotal the role was that John Adams played in Europe to end the war and his diplomatic role. So not only was that part fascinating, but also their interactions with the, really, um, with the royalty they met, with the common people, and how it really played a major part in their thinking about the American identity.
3: John Adams was first assigned to France with Benjamin Franklin, but you write that there were some personality clashes between the two. Uh, why was that?
1: Adams was a very industrious person. He very much focused on the job at hand and the details, and Benjamin Franklin, despite his very famous aphorism of early to bed, early to rise, makes the man wealthy and wise, once he was in France, and he was already in his 70s, he very much enjoyed social life in France, And one of his biographers, I think, very astutely pointed out that he had rather a chameleon-like personality, and he could um, move his personality to suit the environment that he was in. And Adams didn't appreciate that Franklin's sociability actually did move diplomacy forward, but what really frustrated Adams was most of the clerical work and the heavy lifting was really left to him.
3: What were John's overall impressions of France while he was there?
1: They they were mixed. Um he loved the politeness of the of the French. He felt they were extremely hospitable and worked very hard to please their guests. But um, he just, again, saw so much what he felt was excess in the culture. And really, once Abigail gets there, it's very interesting. She writes a very interesting letter to her sister, and she says, if you ask me what the business of life here is in France, I will say it's pleasure from the throne to the footstool.
3: So uh, Abigail felt much the same way then?
1: Yes, yes. They came from a very similar background. John is actually from a more middle farming um, background. Abigail is considered a little higher level class. Her father is a very respected liberal minister um, in her hometown. But they both have kind of imbibed um, the New England lifestyle. In
3: John's first European posting, he left Abigail back in Massachusetts for years Uh, How did her husband's absence affect her?
1: Well, she berated him on several occasions, but she kind of justified it because she felt he was so important to the American cause. It was a challenging time. I mean, she had to supervise the farm, all their finances, the children's education, but she rose to the occasion, and I really think it was an opportunity for her. She developed a thriving business, ironically, in luxury goods that they deprecated all the time, calling them fripperies, but she sold lace um, and other trimmings that John sent her from Europe. And she amassed a nice little amount. She invested in some um, property and some uh, you know, other types of investments. So I think it really gave her an opportunity to become more independent and grow on her own.
3: She understood it was for the greater good, but she was upset that her husband had to be gone for so long. It, it makes me think no woman nowadays, I think, would put up with that
1: necessarily. Well, not only did he go once, but he, he came back um, for a short time and he returned again and again. Uh, she and her daughter wanted to come and again, he said, "It's you know, it's too dangerous, it's too expensive for the whole family and she said, "Okay, now." I, in all fairness, she had other things keeping her back. She didn't want to leave her younger two sons. Her father was ill, so she and she was deathly afraid of um, a voyage across the ocean. So she was not that hard, and on one level, to persuade. But eventually, even John um, becomes so lonely that he says, I just can't pass another winter without you. And so both of them, uh, uh, John's daughter, Nabby, Abigail Jr., and Abigail do voyage across the ocean. And it's, it's quite an experience for them.
3: John's longest posting was to Great Britain after the Treaty of Paris. So was it awkward for him to be in London right after the U.S. had defeated the British in the Revolution?
1: Well, even he felt he wasn't suited to be a diplomat because he told things just as they were. And I I think, I guess, one um, necessary ingredient for a diplomat is to be able to dissemble and to maybe— um, go around things, you know, in a circuitous, you know, route. But I should back up and say that he was one of the strong voices for the 1783 Treaty of Paris that ended the war. And um, he and John Jay and Franklin, but Franklin was sidelined with illness quite a bit of the time. um, The two of them really pushed for American um, success in terms of the treaty, and they really received far more than um, could be expected, and that included land and fishing rights. So um, after that, then he is posted um, to England, and yes, it is a challenge because now he's negotiating with the former enemy. However, he and Abigail were actually both pleased. Um, He was, uh, I wouldn't say welcome, but he was accepted by King George with a great deal of politeness and respect, and um, Really more than they had they had expected.
3: A part of the book that I found particularly funny uh, was when Abigail wrote to I think one of her family members back home in America, complaining about her British servants. She said that she could replace many of her servants with a single American. What do you think this says about the difference in work culture at the time?
1: Okay, well, this work ethic, remember, they're they're from New England, and they have kind of a Puritan background and a really very strong Protestant work ethic. And we find the same thing when she's in Paris. She's appalled at the number of servants. Now, they, they're renting a huge house in Paris with 40 rooms, But um, she's appalled that everyone will only do their assigned job. That's why you need so many. So one uh, maid is only in charge of making beds. And one is in charge of washing the floor. And in, in Paris, you have to, if you're a woman, you have to have your hair dressed every day. And the same thing happens in Great Britain. Um, in London, she has to have a footman and a butler. I mean, these were unheard of, you know, at home. It's certainly on their their level, They're their middle class.
3: Throughout their time abroad, both Abigail and John were convinced that life in America was superior to life in Europe. What was it about life in America that they found more satisfying?
1: Well, I should emphasize they did not think that um, Americans were exceptional. John in particular felt that um, humans were the same all over, the same challenges, um, et cetera, unlike Thomas Jefferson who who really thought that Americans were a different type of people and that's why they were so suited to democracy. But they felt that America had more opportunity, more liberty, and what John always was really striving for was equal justice um, before the law. He was a great proponent of law, and he said over and over again that America needs to be a government of law, not men, because men, and he meant men in a generic term, but not men because people are fallible. They're too easily influenced um, by, by wealth, as I said, charisma, all those things. And we have to follow the letter of the law.
3: How did John's time abroad inform his later political life and his presidency?
1: I think the experience, first of all, many of the revolutionaries had not had any time abroad like George Washington. So he, he saw on the ground what was um, happening. And I think it also, he he saw how frequently England and France came to blows um, one war after another, power plays, um, uh, really constantly um, changing the balance of power. So later when he was president, he actually, one of probably his biggest successes, and he was a one-term president for a number of reasons. But there was a great division at the time between England and France, and America was almost on the, the brink of war with France, and he was able to calm that down and avoid that war. But again, he also, um, the the French Revolution, was a great source of despair for both um, him and for Abigail. And he wanted to make sure nothing like that would be replicated. And he saw, in his view, that was what happened when there were excesses of democracy, too much of the people, in quotes, in charge. So he very much wanted a very structured government with checks of power, and he called it, you know, putting power to power to make sure that not one group or any individual would hold too much sway.
0: Jeannie Abrams, speaking with our public affairs producer, Carla Jimenez, in July, Abrams is a history professor at DU. Her latest book is A View from Abroad, the Story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe. Abrams will be back one more time a little later this hour as this President's Day special on Colorado Matters continues. First, though, the confidants who staffed the White House kitchen. I'm Ryan Warner. Be right back. This is CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise.
1: I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country.
0: It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's President's Day, which falls during Black History Month. And for much of U.S. history, African Americans have cooked for presidents and run their households. Denver food writer Adrian Miller identified at least 150 black culinary professionals who served the nation's chief executives and their families. Some were forced to. Some became so trusted they were asked for political advice. Miller's book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. One personality I think really stands out in this book, Zephyr Wright. Tell us about Zephyr Wright.
2: Well, Zephyr Wright, of all the cooks that I identified, if I could just meet one and sit down and have a meal, she's the one. So she was the private cook for Lyndon Johnson, and she cooked for the Johnsons before he actually became a politician. And um, a lot of people credit her food to helping his rise in politics because he, you know, the nature of things was to entertain and get to know people and bring them over to your house. And so she would make these wonderful southern dinners and was well known for the food that she created. But she encapsulates a lot of the themes of my books because she was a culinary artist, well celebrated. She was a family confidant. When uh, Johnson was inaugurated, she sat in the inauguration box with the family. And then um, she was like a civil rights advocate because Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act.
0: Experiences
2: like what? Well, the family would drive back and forth from Texas to Washington, D.C. And when she went along with the family, she couldn't go to the bathroom with them. At the same time, she could not eat with them in the same places. It got so bad that she finally refused to make the trip. And so Johnson would say uh, to members of Congress, it's a shame that the president's cook has to experience this. So obviously, after the
0: assassination of President Kennedy, she, as Johnson did, rose uh, to
2: prominence in the White House. Yes, yes. But there was a holdover chef from the Kennedy administration, a French chef named René Verdun. Now, he was making French food, which LBJ and the Johnsons weren't feeling. So they would ask him to make (laughs) Tex-Mex and Southern food. And he would call chili con queso, you know, that cheese. He would call that chili concrete. And so they would ask him to make, you know, nachos and other things. And when he would mess it up, they'd say, oh, t- go talk to Zephyr and have her teach you how to do it. It got so bad that Verdone finally quit. I see.
0: Yeah. Boy, that that is a symbol of the difference between the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, if there, if there was one. Yeah.
2: Are there other White
0: House servants, and by that I mean cooks and stewards, that's another position, who
2: became... Politically active that way in in their advice. Yeah. One of the most remarkable stories is a woman named Lizzie McDuffie. Uh, Now, she was actually a maid, but she would help out with food, especially when President Roosevelt would travel. That's who she worked for, President Franklin Roosevelt. In the 1936 election, she actually went on the stump and uh, stumped for him in cities with a large African-American population. And so she was so successful; she went to about eight cities. That after he won that 1936 election, Roosevelt invites her to the Oval Office and personally thanks her. Now, the Hatch Act existed at that time, which forbid, you know, forbade um, White House employees from, you know, campaigning and things like that. But she never got pressed on it.
0: I see. And one way that uh, servants in the White House wind up helping politically is. If there is a state dinner or something like that on short notice, right? So where food becomes something of an, of an elixir of diplomacy, they have to act. right? I think of, of that, I think in the Johnson administration, in which he would call
2: dinners at the last minute. Right. And here we get Zephyr Wright again, and we just see the genius of Zephyr Wright. So if he would show up at the last minute with a large party and uh-huh. demand a dinner, what she would do is she would just start sending out a bunch of liquor. So, people wouldn't think about the food. And then she would serve up whatever was needed.
0: That bought her some time. Oh, yeah. And it kept people entertained. And no one complained, believe it or not. Why the focus on African Americans in particular? Give us some context into the role they have played over time.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's simply because African Americans have dominated. Um, the cooking positions in the White House uh, throughout history. And I've identified 150 people, as you noticed, and I know I'm just scratching the surface. And they've um, played a lot of different roles. And over time, they have mirrored the status of African-Americans in the broader society. A lot of our presidents were slaveholders. So we had a lot of enslaved cooks in the White House. And then we see people as free laborers engaging in White House cooking. Now, at that time, for much of the 18th and 19th century, Cooking and servitude were pretty much the only jobs that African-Americans could enter into without getting a lot of white backlash. Mm. And so a lot of people chose that uh, profession and excelled at it.
0: So it's a microcosm in many ways of what's happening nationally. And we really should talk about the nation's first president, George Washington, who had several African-Americans in service. And one of them, named Francis, was a steward and ran the household managing the budget, ordering the food, supervising other employees. Another was a cook named Hercules... And both were Washington's slaves.
2: Well, Francis was a free man, actually. So Ah. Francis was a biracial man born in Haiti who uh, immigrates to New York probably in the 1750s, runs a business and one place called Francis Tavern, which a replica exists to this day. So Washington would come over and grub at his place. And he loved his food so much that when he became president, he said, I want you to manage my kitchen. I see. And Hercules was brought from mount vernon to run the uh, residence in philadelphia uh, the residence was there before the white house was actually constructed right the interesting thing about that is philadelphia, uh pennsylvania had a law that said any enslaved person who was on pennsylvania soil for more than six months was automatically free so the way that washington got around that is just about the time the six month deadline would toll he would pack up all of his enslaved people send them back to mount vernon have them stay there for a few weeks, and then bring them back to start the clock. Resetting the clock.
0: Yeah. And that was true for this cook named Hercules, yes. who, who was a slave. Yes. What did that make you think of George Washington? Did it change your impression of him?
2: Uh, well, no, I was fairly, fairly um, um, well-versed in his history uh-huh. with enslaved people. So it just reinforced the things that I knew. And I know it's a complicated situation, but uh, I just like, man, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. To do
0: that. To send him out of
2: state to reset the calendar. Yeah. Any sense of who Hercules was? Yeah. So we know that he was a very temperamental chef. He probably would fit in well in a lot of the cooking shows we see on TV today, but um, very accomplished. Um, We know that he was a rather stocky man, kind of a large man, but um, just very good at cooking. And I think later escaped. Yes. On Washington's 65th birthday, he runs away and he's only seen one time after that. And there's a, p- a portrait of, Washington, of, of Hercules uh, sitting in a museum in Spain. And the portrait was painted by Gilbert Stewart, the same guy who painted that iconic portrait of George Washington. it says, a cook for George Washington. And you look at the clothing in that painting, and it looks like the clothing a chef in Europe would wear at that time. Not one in America. So we believe that he just ran overseas.
0: Ran overseas.
2: So that he would not be caught, I suppose, by Washington, who I think continued to look for him. Right. Washington spent a lot of time looking for him, and um, he would spared no expense to track him down.
0: Oh. Adrian, give us some examples of foods that presidents particularly liked and brought to the White House, and therefore the people had to cook for them.
2: <laughs> right. So um, best example is probably Lyndon Johnson, just the, the Southern and Tex-Mex that he brought. So he loved chili. He loved nachos. By the way, President uh, Obama loved nachos as well and guacamole. Uh, But, you know, a lot of presidents loved French food. So Jefferson definitely had French food served in the White House. So did James Monroe and Chester Arthur. He was known as a gourmand. Uh, And so he had a lot of uh, elegant food. But then Kennedy brought a lot of New England favorites. So usually it's the food of their childhood that they bring with them.
0: Jefferson having an interest in French cooking, I understand, brings essentially a kind of gourmet mac and cheese into the White House.
2: Right. So in the earliest days of mac and cheese in this country, it was really wealthy Americans who would travel to Europe. They got introduced to the dish and they would bring it back. And we know that Jefferson served mac and cheese in the White House because one of the dinner guests wrote about it in his diary. He was a guy named Reverend Manassas Cutler. And he, was, uh, he really couldn't figure out what mac and cheese was. He thought the pasta were big onions. And so he had to ask the guy next to him, what is this dish? And he explained that it's a pasta dish from Italy. And, blah, blah, blah. and that person was Meriwether Lewis.
0: Ah, Yeah,
2: he was at that dinner. On- onions
0: and cheese, that sounds <laughs> awful. You mentioned several presidents who had a little trouble pushing themselves back from the table. <laughs> Their wives and staffs actually had to try to keep them on diets. And President Taft, who notoriously weighed about 340 pounds, had a real taste for apple pie.
2: Yes. Uh, he, loved, he loved apples in general. And so when he would travel on the train, there was an African-American chef named John Smeads, and he was well known for his apple pie. But he was on a strict diet. And if the first lady or the White House physician was on the train, it was a no-go for the president. But even when they were off the train, the staffers knew he was on a diet and they knew they would hear it from either the first lady or the White House physician. So they actually formed the secret order of the apple pie in order to get some of John Smead's famous pie, but keep the president away from it. And the president knew what was going on and kind of played along.
0: Food, specifically beans, caused a big controversy in Lyndon Johnson's administration. Uh, Here's some tape you found from the Johnson Library, where the president's personal secretary, Juanita Roberts, calls the cook, whom we've spoken about earlier, Zephyr Wright. And uh, Roberts' questions Wright very closely about what kinds of beans the president likes. So let's listen. Um, Zephyr Wright speaks first.
1: He like pork and beans. He like panto beans. He like uh, llama beans, green beans. That's green llamas
3: are dried. That's green llamas green. Mm -hmm.
2: Why did that conversation take place? Well, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So the White House released a recipe for something called Pertinales River chili, and that's a river that runs alongside the LBJ Ranch in central Texas. Now, if you know any Texans, Chile in Texas does not have any beans. And so when the White House releases this recipe, people across the country freak out. <laughs> and they want to be reassured that their president loves beans. So this was all just a spin control. And so they had to go to the source, the authoritative source on the subject. That was Zephyr Wright. And it's funny because this is part of all of the uh, collection, the collection that, of the audio tapes that Johnson had in the White House. So the recording system was actually put in under Kennedy. Johnson takes it up a large scale, and he actually recommends it to Nixon, and we know how that turned out.
0: Yes, indeed. The doing in of Nixon. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver food writer Adrian Miller speaking with me in 2017. We revisited that conversation for President's Day. And a note that since we spoke, Miller joined the CPR Board of Directors. In the early days of the Republic, it wasn't clear what the wife of the president should be called. Sometimes it was the presidentess or Mrs. President. Martha Washington was often referred to as Lady Washington. Like her husband George, she had to navigate a brand new role. So what was it like to be one of the first First Ladies? And how much has that role changed since? Let's hear again now from historian Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver. She wrote a book about Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, And Dolly Madison. Of course, uh, the Americans had just defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. How did that rejection of the monarchy help shape the role of First Lady? I mean, you, you didn't want to come across as too highfalutin, right?
1: Correct. So really what they had to navigate this new role was to try to figure out how to maintain a regal demeanor without a throne or a crown. So everything, ceremonies, clothing, what food they served, all were indicative of the manner that the government was unfolding.
0: Interesting. You had to be regal, but you couldn't be too queen-like. And this, as you say, came down to what they wore, where the fabrics they wore came from, and even the kind of chair they sat in. Tell me about that.
1: Well, several things. Let's go back maybe to the fashion first, because I think we don't realize how much fashion made a political statement at the time. In England, kings and queens had ceremonies that had been developed over centuries, and they wore elaborate costumes when King George and Queen Charlotte were coronated. One of the witnesses said that Queen Charlotte wore a jewel-encrusted gown with pearls, for example, as big as cherries. The train of her dress was carried by her lady-in-waiting. A canopy was held over her head by 16 barons. It was made of what they called cloth of gold, gold fibers, and it was a major contrast to what happened in the newly formed United States. George Washington, when he was inaugurated, was dressed in a simple brown suit that was manufactured from cloth from Connecticut. And his wife, Martha, was not even at his side at the time of the inauguration. And when she finally arrived in New York about a month later, she wore an elegant but simple dress, and the local newspaper reported with great admiration that she was clothed in the manufacture of our country. Of that,
0: our country. Right. And and so this became incredibly... Political And these first first ladies really were under the microscope this way. The public gauging whether they were American enough and had separated enough from the monarchy. And there, at one point, the question is raised whether Martha Washington during a political salon is sitting in too high a chair if it looks too throne-like.
1: Correct. So she actually sat on a platform and a, I guess a comfortable but not unusual chair, but many people criticized the Washingtons for bringing back monarchy. That was too much like a throne, even though there was really nothing throne-like about it. And Abigail Adams, who hated the press and felt that they were very often very critical and unfair, really shared with her husband her feeling that everything the Washingtons did were really with the best intentions in all innocence.
0: You write about the close friendship that Martha Washington and Abigail Adams formed. uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think it's really important to understand the role of women in general in the late 1700s in this country, the constraints on them. They really didn't enjoy the full rights of citizens at that point.
1: They did not have legal rights, and they were not married. Women were not allowed to engage in any legal contracts. They couldn't even write wills, so they were um, they were really operating under the laws of coverture. Really, what that that means, literally, covered by their husbands. Correct. So even though none of the three women would be what we would call feminists today, and um, I think the word actually applying to them is really an anachronism, I think we have to be very careful not to examine the past from a presentist type of lens. But um, Abigail certainly believed very firmly in education for women, and she also really tried to influence her husband in terms of legal rights for women.
0: I want to talk about their political involvement, because as First Lady Martha Washington, you write, is credited with introducing the country's first political salon. What was a political salon, and why were they important?
1: So we're talking about the days before television, radio, um, certainly print is coming into its own, many more newspapers, but the way people interacted was really one-on-one. And the American salons really were an arena for politicians to kind of experiment with their ideas, try to persuade one another to come to their um, side. And in that very fragile new republic, where there were very soon great divisions between the main, the main, the only two political parties at the time, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans, trying to establish unity was a goal that was often elusive.
0: And it was often a task that the First Ladies saw themselves as fulfilling, uh, helping their husbands in this way.
1: Well, uh, several things. I believe that they really felt their job was to burnish the reputations of their husbands. I think many of them acted as kind of informal PR agents, um, The something that we have more formally, obviously, today. But I think they saw that these salons and dinners and entertainments were a way to move forward the agendas for their husband's um, term in office.
0: Which may not be an overtly political act, but is absolutely one with political consequences. Uh, You say the term First Lady probably didn't come until much later when Mary Todd Lincoln was in the role. And you note that there's really never been an official mandate for the role of First Lady. It's always been something crafted by the woman who holds the position. Uh, Jeannie, as First Lady Martha Washington declared that she felt like a state prisoner. Did she give any examples or further explanation well, of why? Well, I
1: want to put that in a little perspective. I think one of the great values of studying history actually is to put current events in perspective. So I think what we see is from the very first, both the president and first lady were under constant public scrutiny. So that was something that Martha did not welcome. Um, she was, when um, Washington was elected, they were both in their late 50s. Um, being in your late 50s in the 18th century was older than being in your late 50s um, today. She felt that they were destined to hopefully live out their lives in tranquility in Mount Vernon. So first of all, she did not like moving to New York. and The
0: capital at the time. Yes,
1: the um, temporary seat of government at the time. And she did not like her social interactions being dictated by the president and cabinet members, and so she wrote her niece and said that she felt often like a state prisoner, That's not unusual. Harry Truman often referred to the White House as the great white prison. Mm -hmm. So probably most presidential couples have had very similar outlooks.
0: It seems that this view of the experience of being a first lady is what brings Martha Washington and Abigail Adams closer together. They become uh, quite good friends. Um, But compared to them, Dolly Madison really comes across as larger than life. I mean, you refer to her as a celebrity of her day. What do you think she brought to that still-fledgling office that the others hadn't?
1: Well, Martha was, first of all, an experienced hostess who actually knew how to occupy her position Then Abigail Adams was probably the most intellectual of the three first first ladies. Um, She was a political theorist in her own right.
0: She tussles with the press,
1: often in defense of her husband. Correct. And she really um, is extremely well-read, probably, as one of her contemporaries said, the most knowledgeable woman of her time in terms of politics and culture.
0: I understand that you think she'd be president if she were alive today.
1: Yes. I think that if women had been allowed to run for office, um, she probably would have been even more popular than her husband, John, who could be a little prickly sometimes. Okay, Abigail certainly had charm, even though she was a very strong-willed woman. But I think what Dolly Madison was able to do was Really, she was very politically savvy, and she also had great charisma, and that combination of the two enabled her to really move her husband forward. Madison could be charming in small groups, but he was pretty shy and retiring generally, and she humanized him, and she was probably the key to his political success.
0: It is really uh, Dolly Madison who helps shape early Washington what became Washington, D.C. She and her husband are really the first administration to install themselves permanently in, I think, what was called Washington Mm -hmm. City back then. I I wasn't aware of how much she shaped the city. You know, I want to note that um, the first three first ladies don't represent the first three administrations because Thomas Jefferson had been elected as a widower.
1: Correct. And Even though Thomas Jefferson's daughter Martha occasionally acted as hostess in the White House, it was really Dolly—it wasn't the White House at that time, the president's house—it was really Dolly who experienced her apprenticeship, so to speak, as first lady, because she was very prominent as Madison's wife at the time, and she and Jefferson got along very well. And Jefferson, although, again, a charming, brilliant personality Tended to be very informal consciously in the White House. Um, he was the head of the what was then considered um, Demo- Re- Republican-Democrats, Democratic-Republicans. They hadn't um, arrived versus at their the final. So. Versus the Federalists. He really emphasized um, the common man and tried to be very informal. Um, he famously greeted guests in his slippers um, A lot of um, contradictions in personality. He also brought, I think, over 600 bottles of fine wine back from France. So there were some things that um, were way beyond the realm of the common man that he um, exhibited. But in any case, often um, Dolly would be there to smooth over differences, both in um, Jefferson's administration and in Madison's.
0: In Jefferson's as well. Interesting. And, Eugenie, I was fascinated to read in your book that New Jersey gave some women the vote briefly Mm -hmm. in the 1790s. I think it was only for women who were landed. Is that right? Yeah. And then it was quickly taken away. Uh, I want to ask about suffrage and whether Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, or Dolly Madison had their eye in some regard on women being able to vote.
1: I think only in a very limited fashion. Again, since um, Abigail Adams certainly was an advocate of legal rights for women, I don't think that she realistically envisioned political rights um, at the time, but I think she thought it might um, really occur down the horizon. She did write her sister about the women in New Jersey who were allowed to vote. Um, She looked at that with admiration. Um, But she also um, really was a woman of her era in many ways. She felt that men and women had very distinct, separate roles. And at one point she wrote, "Um, all honor is really in following your role to the best of your capacity. But that doesn't mean that she also didn't support an idea in the future of women voting. What she did believe was that even though women didn't hold the reins of government at her time, she felt that they should have a voice in how the journey went forward.
0: Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver wrote, First Ladies of the Republic, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Dolly Madison— and the creation of an iconic American role. That conversation came from 2018. And that's Colorado Matters on this President's Day with thanks to our cabinet Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
3: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael
3: Hughes, Carla Jimenez,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
3: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.